Last week, we wrapped up our membership series, and so sometimes it's like, well, what do we do after that? Like, the series is over. What are the next steps? And um, so the next step, and I'm just warning you, this sounds really official. Um, It's not as official as it sounds, but the next step is to do a membership interview. And so what a membership interview is, is us getting together over coffee or dinner um, and possibly with like Patty and I and us getting together. And what it is is just a great time to intentionally, as someone's becoming a covenant member, to intentionally just sit down and, and just kind of hear each other's stories a little bit more deeply. Uh, we'll go over the expectations and the requirements of membership again and just see if there are like personal, you know, any questions that individually you might have. Uh, then what we're going to do too, and you'll see, so we have these Thessalonian scripture booklets that you can have and mark up as we go through the book, but then every other chair had this like printout in there too. And so another thing that we're going to try and do is have before you come to the membership interview, to have written one-page version of your testimony. And we thought, man, how cool it would be for people to really sit down and the charter members of Sacred Mission Church to have, like, all of the written testimonies of kind of, like, what Jesus has done to get us to hear in this point in our lives. And so you'll actually come to the membership interview with that written testimony. So on that sheet, there's a couple pages there that just kind of helps walk you through because you're just kind of like, well, where do I start? And it actually follows the way that Paul would share his story. Paul shared his testimony a lot when he was sharing with people about Jesus. And so it can be a good way. And then when you have like a one-page version of your story, sometimes it's easier to share it with people because, you know, you could know like in two minutes I can give you a quick rundown while we're dragging brush together or something, and I could share with you what Jesus has done in my life. Then uh, we'll also have on the back of that sheet is the actual covenant that we would sign. So we'll have like a pretty like heavy paper version of that, Uh, but that is the actual like covenant. So if it's like, hey, how many covenant members do we have? We could say, oh, here are the signed covenants that we have. And once again, we're deleting this every year because we don't want to get to where it's like, yeah, we have a thousand members and 120 people come on Sundays. You know, we want it to truly be like, this is just a physical representation of the body of Christ that the Lord has brought together. And uh, so we spent a lot of time kind of why we're doing this, why we think it's important and everything. Uh, but I talked to our advisory team, who's kind of functioning as our elders until elders are, are locally raised up here. And I told our advisory team, I was like, should we like do this in groups? Should we have like 10 people at a time do these membership interviews? And they were like, nope. Even, like our recommendation to you, and I thought it was a good idea, they said, even if it takes eight months, to do all these interviews, you will never regret spending time. And I've probably for about 10 years as a pastor have done in interviews like this, and they're typically amazing. Times of just rejoicing over like, Jesus did that in your life? I can't believe that. Um, and so, uh, so it might take us a while to get through, but we'll, starting this week and happening, start looking at like how we're gonna try and schedule everybody uh, who, who is uh, desiring to become a covenant member. So, so that'll happen in happenings, but then we'll have low-tech versions probably on the Connect table where you can just sign up for time slots and stuff like that. So that sound okay? I think this is the last time I'll spend a lot of time talking about membership, so I'm kind of done talking about it, on, uh, it during this time, uh, but I'm also really excited to see like the second year of our church going into a formal covenant membership, just how the Lord uses us in those ways too. It'd be a great time that where we look at gifting, how God has gifted you 
for this church at this time, theological questions you might have, all that stuff, that'll be a perfect place for us to discuss all that stuff. So, so 1 Thessalonians. Man, when we started the book of Daniel, right at the time that COVID was breaking out worldwide, I was blown away by just like, gosh, I think, I know this book has been in the Bible for a long time, but I also feel like the Lord just sent it to us to say, here's a book that you need for this moment in the life of, of, of our church, in the life of our community. And for First Thessalonians, I'm starting to feel the same. I've, our, kind of, it's been our direction that we're heading into the book of First Thessalonians, but I just feel like for like this moment of our lives, this moment of our families, this moment in our community, that I'm just praying that the Lord would use this book for us to kind of find our story in the story of the church at Thessalonica. And what Paul is going to do and what the Holy Spirit is doing in writing the book of First Thessalonians, uh, man, I hope that this is just like writes a story of rural central Iowa and just seeing Jesus build his church here. Um, and so can I pray as we start this, uh, then we'll, we'll start diving into some scripture here. Uh, but Lord, as we, as we start this book, thank you that you've told us that all scripture is breathed out by you, and it's all so profitable for us, instructs us, makes our hearts come alive, gives us a vision for what you want to do here, what you want to do inside of us, what you want to do in our families. And Lord, I just thank you that you are not the type of God that is far away and is disappointed in us and is just um, distant. But Lord, thank you that you are near and that you even invite us to be nearer still. Um, so Lord, as we kick off this book of the Bible, um, would you not find walls going up? Would you not find us uh, distracted by so many other things? But Lord, would you, uh, would you give us even the, the strength and the power and the clarity right now to just really hear from you? Not to hear from me, but to hear from you through your words for our good, for your glory. We pray these things. Amen. Okay, so to get the book of 1 Thessalonians, we have to first get what made the book of 1 Thessalonians happen. And so to get that, we have to see the planting of this church, okay? So the planting of the, book, of the church of 1 Thessalonians happens in Acts chapter 17. And so you can turn to Acts 17. You can write it in those, in those journals. Uh, we'll have it on the screen too. Um, Acts 17, starting in verse 1, it says this. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, so on, on three Saturdays for them, but on, on three Sundays, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And just that word Christ, like that's not Jesus' last name. What that basically means is it's kind of a Greek version of a Hebrew word that basically means 
this is the one that all of the Old Testament was about. This is the one that all of the prophecies of this, the Messiah, the Savior who's coming, this is the one we're talking about. So the word Christ encapsulates all of that. So, so Paul is saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the one you have been yearning for, the one you've been hoping for, the one that you've been reading for generations about that's coming. This is him. Verse 4, some of them were persuaded and they joined Paul and Silas as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews, it doesn't seem like that word but, it's like, dang, like it's all going great, but, but the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob. They formed a mob, set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason who was the leader of the synagogue, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, Paul and Silas, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Man, so Paul is so far from Jerusalem where this is happening. Paul is closer to Athens than he is Jerusalem uh, in just on the map. Thessalonica is on this major highway that's called the Via Ignatia. So it's kind of like I-35. There are these major highways that went through the Roman Empire. The one major highway went right through Thessalonica. Thessalonica is an urban center. Paul and Silas have come. And they're able to preach the gospel for three weeks. Imagine that. We've been a church for a year. They were able to preach the gospel for three weeks. In those three weeks, he's speaking to people in the synagogue and a lot of kind of the, 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 the church people. A lot of them are just like, mm, I don't know. But then he's preaching to people outside the church who didn't grow up in church and these people are giving their lives to Jesus in these three weeks. And as this church is just getting started, and they've spent about a month pouring into these new believers and these disciples, a mob forms. So, like, this is their coronavirus. This is their derecho. It's a mob of people. And interesting, it says, you know, when a mob is formed, it's usually not, like, like sweet people with apple pies wanting to welcome you into the community, right? A mob of apple pies broke out and we had to eat all of them. Like it even says, it's a mob of wicked men. They attack the house of the synagogue ruler. They accuse the people. They accuse people who have only been following Jesus for weeks that they're in on it with Paul and Silas trying to turn the world upside down uh, at times, Silas and Paul had been beaten and imprisoned. Paul is going to end up being killed for proclaiming freedom to people. But here, Paul and Silas are able to escape to Berea, and then they go to Corinth. And so they kind of move towards Athens, and they're able to get out of there. Uh, this is probably the year 49 AD, 50 AD. So Jesus has been risen for about 15 years, 20 years they're planting churches throughout the Roman Empire. And here's what happens. 
as Paul and Silas are now far from Thessalonica, they're at a safe place, they start just being freaked out and worried. And they're like, is there any chance that this baby church survived? I mean, we had three weeks of discipleship here. Is there any chance that these people are still okay? Uh, man, you know, they, we probably didn't have enough time to disciple them before persecution broke out. They, they, they're probably just been destroyed. Um, man, probably these people who turned from idols, turned from false gods to Jesus, they've probably gone back. They were probably like, whoa, I didn't sign up for this. And they probably went back. And so um, Paul and Silas are, are really, really wondering, like, is this going to be okay? And I was just, I was thinking a little bit this morning as I was, um, it, it's a, it's a, not nearly in the ballpark of what Paul and Silas were feeling, but I just remember like looking out our window from our basement as like the storm had been going for like five minutes and kind of being like, is anything left outside, right? Like, I mean, because we couldn't see that far and just had this feeling of like for 20 minutes or whatever, where it's just like, I don't know, I don't know what's going on. I feel helpless and I don't know, I mean, you just kind of like, hold on, trees, you know, or man, farmers, like you're, hold on, stocks, you know, like don't break. And in that similar, like, I know a huge storm is crashing down, and I don't know if these people made it. This is the way Paul and Silas are feeling about the people that they had to leave in Thessalonica to not be killed at that moment. That was not God's time for them. And what happens is a report comes back to them. And I think it must have been months, maybe even a year later, because there's a lot of time for things to happen that we'll see in the letter later. And what they hear is that this church has not just survived, but it's like going. It is, it is, it is thriving. The persecution didn't undo them. And what's interesting is like they're amazing, and there's still an entire book of the Bible correcting them, but they're amazing. And I love that. I love that it's like, oh my gosh, they are alive and well. And we'll walk through several weeks of things that Paul is leading them in their thinking, in the way that they're coping with things. Uh, but they are physically and spiritually alive. They withstood all the storms that threatened them. They're stronger through it. Time has passed. And Paul and Silas and Timothy now sit down and they write this letter to them after hearing that they made it. After hearing that they survived things that could have destroyed them. And, you know, by God's grace, like, I've, I heard this past week, I met with some pastors in Iowa City, and one of those guys had two really close friends who had planted churches at the same time that we did, and those churches have already closed. They, like, just couldn't survive all that happened in 2020. And, you know, by God's grace, um, he, we're We're good. <laughs> We are alive and well. We're seeing Jesus do amazing things. And we've got a long way to go. And we've got a lot that Jesus, I think, is going to do in the second year to form us into his people. And I think that's why this book is so timely for us right now. Because we've come through a lot. A lot that almost no church plant ever encounters in their first year. We've encountered 
and we're okay. And I would say we're even thriving and we're able to really shine brightly and we've got a lot of work to do. And that's, uh, man, Lord, would you do that as we now dive into this book? So, so what we're gonna see is two major traits, two major traits that I feel like made the Thessalonica church not be destroyed. It's like, okay, let's go, let's go and see what we can observe just in these first 10 verses that made it so that only after three weeks of discipleship, they were able to withstand amazing, horrendous persecution and affliction. And so I think we'll see two major traits in these verses. So the first trait we're going to see is in verses 1 through 3. So verse 1 starts, Paul, Silvanus. So Silvanus is the Latin form of the, of the name Silas. So uh, scholars think there's a reason why Silas, with his Latin name, might have been written to the Thessalonian church in a way that some of those Greek people could connect with him more or something. But it's the same, same person that we saw in the book of Acts. So Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians. Isn't that beautiful right there? To the church of the Thessalonians. Not to the, like, little baby Christian people who, man, are just little baby. But he's like, this, this is a church. To the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. These are Paul's first words to these people. Grace to you and peace. Grace is that you, you get what you don't deserve. Grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always, always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before God our Father. So they're remembering in the presence of God, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So I think just from these first few verses, the first major trait that I feel like allowed this church to not be destroyed in such affliction is that they're a church surrounded by prayer. Like if you really look at those first three verses, this is a church that is surrounded by prayer. We see first an acknowledgement to God, speaking to God like this is indeed a church. And I think usually we have such a small view of what a church is, but it's a living body of our Trinitarian God. So it's like if this is a real church, this is a body of the one who death couldn't even defeat him. The power of the one. So it's like, do we have a lot of power? No. The one who the church is about, does he have a lot of power? Yes. And we are acknowledging that from go, that in just a short time, a church was truly born in Thessalonica. God is powerful. God is alive. And this church is in his hands. People outside and inside this church are praying accordingly. And then they're praying prayers of thanks. You know, like, I mean, to try and put ourselves into that position, you know, like, if it's like, hey, Derecho's just hit, it's noon on Monday. And it's like, we're probably not praying prayers of thanks. We're praying prayers of intercession or prayers of, like we're praying a lot of different prayers, but we're probably not doing a lot of thanks. Now, some are being thankful that 
that, man, a lot of lives could have been lost in that storm across our state. But, like, I find myself that when I, when my, I'm just feeling defeated or I'm just feeling weird, I'm not feeling alive, um, whatever it may be, that when my prayers go to a place of thanks, like, God, thank you so much. And it's actually specific, you know, like, God, thank you for James. Thank you for what you're doing in James's life, you know? And, and I'm just thinking about James, and I'm thinking about his life, and I'm thinking about God's hand on him. Like, man, that just starts, like, changing me. <laughs> and it truly starts, like, melting my heart, and it starts allowing me to think about us in ways that's so different than the way that I could just think about us. And, uh, and I, I love here that in this church being surrounded by prayer, that just starting by saying, we give thanks to God always for all of you. Not just for like, oh yeah, I pray for, you know, Madison and Christy, but, um, you know, that's probably all that's necessary, right? Or whatever. But he's praying for every single soul that is a part of that church, knowing that each is knit together to be a body with many parts. And he's, he's praying that. And, and man, I think for us to be a people, I feel a depth of being formed for us to become a church that wouldn't just squeak through this time, but instead like we'd become a lighthouse during COVID, become a lighthouse during derecho and whatever else may come. And a lot of that coming from us just being thankful in God's presence. If we're just thankful in prayer, you're like, that's it? <laughs> that's like, it seems too simple. We need more, we need like the second level. But if we actually stay thankful in prayer to our God for what he is doing in our lives and through us and praying for each other, receiving that prayer, um, man, that could massively affect our areas. And I just want to let you know, I've had church leaders just in the last two weeks, just to know, like, the church of Thessalonica was surrounded by prayer. And I want you to let you know, like, we are too, which is really humbling. It's humbling, but it should fill us with courage. Just in the last two weeks, I've had personally church leaders, so it's not just the leaders, but it's the, them leading their churches as well, reach out to us uh, from Mumbai, India, from Sioux Falls, South Dakota, from Omaha, from Dallas, from LA, from Cape Cod, from Denver, and many from Oklahoma and Oklahoma City uh, who have reached out. Um, we, we started Disaster Relief Fund. We've had those churches give over $20,000 to that fund that we promise 100% of it's gonna go. Uh, you know, some of the needs we might not, are gonna go towards disaster relief here. Some of those needs we might not find till after insurance kind of runs their course and it's like, okay, uh, we thought they were gonna pay for this, they're not, like let's help this family. Maybe farmers at harvest time, there'll be aspects there. So uh, man, like those are prayers, mainly prayers surrounding us. And then also, because they're praying for us, they're wanting to do everything they can for us to shine brightly here uh, for the Lord's glory. And uh, Josh Curry is one of those pastors, and uh, he's probably, of any pastor who has led churches to surround us, he's probably had the most 
uh, leadership influence there, and he'll be preaching here in two weeks, and, uh, and I talked to him on the phone, and he said, hey, I wanted to let you know I'm praying for you guys constantly. And I didn't say, oh, I'm, I'm preaching in First Thessalonians. Did you know that that's kind of how Paul talked about him praying? Like, Josh didn't know any of that. And when he said that, like, sometimes, like, like if I say that to you, I'm probably lying. <laughs> that, hey, I'm praying constantly, uh, unless if it's something super major. Like, I want to pray more, but I'm probably not praying constantly. Like, I'd love to get there. But I think when Josh told me, like, I'm praying constantly for you guys, I'm like, I actually believe you. And that's really humbling, and thank you for surrounding us in prayer. And we want that to be our DNA, too, is to surround each other in prayer and to allow people to pray for us in such a way. Because the church is not—this isn't a building he's talking about. He's talking about people and how he is individually praying for these people. And these people, as a collective community of followers of Jesus, are being surrounded in prayer. And they didn't even know it, a lot of them, because it was like radio silence. After all this mob and all that stuff, no one had any idea what was going on in there. And they were thriving in the midst of, of having that just be poured on them. So... Um, so there, and then you see a couple things too in the content of the prayer that's huge. He's remembering their work of faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things unseen. Their faith, he's, he's remembering, like, man, they're, and it's so interesting that he calls it the work of faith. It's like they're like even working at their trust, working at their faith in the midst of affliction, uh, then their labor of love. These are people who don't just show up for an hour and disappear. Uh, I heard this week of a family in our church who very discreetly showed up. They're actually not here. I could really make fun of them, but I will, or honor them, whatever it is, but um, uh, they, so it's probably narrowing it down. I probably shouldn't share this, but uh, don't pretend to think who it is, but they very quietly, no one knew it was happening, just went over to some people's house and just cleaned up everything. You know, and I'm like, man, they didn't have, they weren't posting, letting everybody know what they were doing. They were just laboring out of love for the body of Christ. And I thought it was beautiful. And he's saying here, like, we are thanking God because we're hearing of your labor of love. We're hearing of your work that comes out of a heart of love in serving each other during times of affliction. Um, and these people also uh, are being uh, in the prayer God is thanking, or Paul is thanking them for their steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Upon believing in Jesus, the Lord just put roots down deep of hope in their Lord Jesus Christ. That was like, man, those roots went down so fast that when the storm came, their hope, their hope didn't blow over. Like, their hope was able actually to be there. And, man, this isn't, like, to condemn us. If, it, if you're like, man, I think my hope fell over. I think it's broken and rotting on the ground. Man, let us surround you in prayer. Like, let us love you and serve you and come near to you. And let's do that to our neighbors as well. As the storms threaten to destroy them, uh, Paul's rejoicing that they were steadfast in their hope. And, man, Lord, would we be steadfast as a church in our hope uh, in the way that you led the Thessalonian church to be that way? Would, would we be that way, too? So they're a church surrounded by prayer. That's like the first trait. Uh, then, uh, to make it 
the rest of this section, the second thing is that they're also an alive church. They're an alive church. And man, unfortunately, churches can stop being alive. They can. Uh, they can start becoming just about like organized religion. Uh, I was two days on Friday, I was at a, a person's house and, and they just said, uh, man, I thank you for people from the church coming and helping us with chainsaws and all that stuff, but I'm just not into organized religion. And I was like, I'm not either. <laughs> like, I am not, and we joked, I think, yesterday, we're so disorganized. We're so disorganized in the way we follow. But this idea, though, that what we're trying to be is not this, um, man, we're not trying to be a club. We're not trying to be a group of people that are about, like, all these moral rules that it's like, hey, if you want to be a part of our club, here are all these moral rules that you need to follow. Like, that actually leads to death. And, and that's not life. That's what the Pharisees were doing. And Jesus flipped over their tables because he's like, no, it's me. What makes us alive is you are focusing on the one who's alive. That's what makes the church alive is you're focusing on the one who is alive. And this is what the Thessalonian church was doing is that you can tell Jesus is the center of this and it's not a dead and dying church. We have churches in our state who have stopped believing the words of scripture. Many churches in our state who when Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father but through me, they're like, no, we don't believe that it's a loving way to be. And they've rejected this. And I have no delight in saying that. But to say that things happened in the late 1800s, things happened in the 1920s that made a lot of churches start being about things that were the exact opposite that Jesus taught us to be about. And, and in many ways, these churches stopped being alive because they stopped being centered on the one who is alive, on Jesus. And, uh, and one of the things that, by God's grace and our, our prayer, is, and we're not the only ones that are talking about this, there are many alive churches in and around us, but what we see here in these verses is that there are a lot of things that make this church be an alive church. And the first one is that it's made up of saved people. Saved people. Look at verse four. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. When the gospel was proclaimed, when the good news that Jesus has taken their place, he has paid the penalty of their sin, that they have been chosen by him, that they have heard the good news, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, they feel convicted of their sin, and they say, you are my Savior. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, and it's a church full of people who have done that who are saved. Now, that doesn't mean we walk around and be like, <laughs> I am so proud that I'm saved. It's like, no, that should humble us. That should humble us because we have been rescued. Like, it's silly that there's a reputation of church people that we feel holier than thou. Now, a lot of times that's from people who might not know, <laughs> know people, and, and that's kind of just a, a stereotype. 
But the reality being that we should be some of the most humble people because we're realizing we need rescue. We need to be saved. We're not pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. We're bowing to the one who has rescued us. And what Paul is recognizing here is like, what has, one of the things that has made the Thessalonian church thrive is that these people truly are saved. They have truly given their lives to Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And that's his work. That's, that's our joy to see him work. And, and it's our joy that we've seen many people saved in the last year of our church as well. And it's not an exclusive club, but instead it's to say like, hey, we're unapologetically every Sunday. Like you can invite friends knowing every single week, like we will offer to them to give their lives to Jesus because that's what we're about. Like if you... If you were like, can there be a Sunday where we don't mention Jesus? And I'd be like, no, <laughs> like there cannot be one because this is what this is about. This is what we're about. We're, we will, morality is important, but it's important after seeing him and learning from him and letting him change us that then we, we live as transformed people. So first, the church is made up of saved people, which makes it an alive church. And then second that they're actually teachable people. They're teachable. Look at verses five and six. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And, we became, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Um, I don't know why it's so hard sometimes to, to be teachable, um, man, like, I think we all like to just, um, like, I've, there's so many times that I've used a chainsaw that my dad's come up and been like, whoa, 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 you know, like, you're doing it wrong. And there's a part of me that could be like, hey, lay off. I'm a grown man and I have a chainsaw in my hands, you know. But I, c- I could say that or I could be like, well, I guess I'd like to do it the right way. <laughs> like, I, I guess I'd like for the next 20 years, like not to dole the blade every five minutes, you know, or whatever it may be, and to actually just have a posture of being teachable. And what I love is that that is what he is, is praising the Thessalonian church about, is like, hey, you are actually able to, to imitate us. And when, and when we said, hey, let's act this way, or let's follow the Lord this way, and it was like, yeah, okay, I, w- I was thinking about going that way, but yeah, let's go this way. And then the Holy Spirit was doing it. So it was like you were able to be led by, by leaders and the Holy Spirit. Like I think there was just a teachable heart that was formed in the Thessalonian church that allowed them to thrive because they, they weren't pretending that they had it all together. They weren't pretending that they knew exactly how to just go for it. They realized that they needed the Spirit to lead them, and he did, and that was beautiful, and that led to what we see in verse 7 is that they became an example to others, other churches and other people. Look at verse 7. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia. So imagine, this is a church that was only three weeks old and had no leadership. And it was only three weeks of of Paul and Silas leading them. And then 100% the Holy Spirit leading them. 
and other churches have been established. This is 15 years after the resurrection. So some of these churches had been around for 10 years probably. But in verse 7, this new baby church became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia, which is kind of like the state, the region that they were in. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you, so they're actually proclaiming it with their voices, with their works. Not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. It's like, man, if you want to see the gospel unleashed, look at this church and look at the tangible witness that they are and listen to what they're saying and churches all around that state the region of the empire christians are hearing about how this new group of believers are living for god in the midst of things that should destroy them and the thessalonian church is even being known for their faith they're known for how they're sharing the gospel with others they're known for just how they're working as followers of jesus that would be done on earth as is in heaven and another trait that we see in verse 9 is that they're patient They are patient. Look at verse 9. For they themselves report concerning us. So these other churches that are witnessing, so these other churches are kind of seeing the Thessalonian church, and then they're sending letters to Paul and Silas and being like, wow, did you know about this? Did you, have you heard about this part of what they're doing? They themselves, these churches, report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait For his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. What a, I mean, that's majestic writing there. How you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Do you feel that peace in the life of this church? Like the Thessalonian church isn't running around like a bunch of chickens with their heads cut off at a time of, of affliction. Like they're even being hospitable. Like there takes a level of peace, a level of patience in the midst of the storm to even be hospitable to other people. If it's like, hey, we're a bunch of churches from Achaia that are passing through going to Athens. Could we stop? It to, oh, gosh, we, we have a affliction going on here, storms going on here. You have no idea what we have going on here. Like, there's no way. Come back in a year. But instead, it's like, these people are so hospitable to us. And these Thessalonian believers are, like, loving other people who love Jesus and then we say, see that they're patient. They don't think, man, I need to go back to serving those idols. Because when I did, I wasn't being persecuted. Life was better then. It's like, no, they're being patient and saying, my Savior is coming. And I am being patient for him because he has been raised from the dead. And he is the one who delivers us from the wrath to come. So where do we go with this? Where do we... Where do we walk out the door with this? I think, I, I just, I've been chewing on this for a few days, being like, man, we're, like, what should tomorrow look like? What should Tuesday look like having this revealed to us? And I think one of the questions that I thought, yeah, this is like for all of us, is just, are you a person that's surrounded by prayer? So taking those first few verses, um, 
Are, are you a person that is surrounded by prayer? And it's okay to be like, man, no, but here we go. <laughs> no, but okay, I'm going to be open to step into this more. Like, are you a person that's being surrounded by prayer? And I think this is praying for and being prayed for. So it might be this week you're just like, hey, I'm just going to write down on a little, little note card, put in my back pocket, just five people in our church that I'm just going to thank God for this week. That's it. And maybe it's the people that you would least thank God for. <laughs> like that might be a good place to start because we've had a year of some rubbing elbows and friction and stuff, which I think is just discipleship as, uh, as we actually try to do eternal things together in our community. Um, so it could just be writing down on, three, on a four by six card or whatever and just praying for, but it could also be, which is not natural I think in rural central Iowa, as we've shown, like, man, it's amazing how many skid loaders and just like, it's like the apocalypse happens and we'll be okay. Like, we'll dig out, we've got enough weapons, all that stuff, right? Like, there's a self-sufficiency here that has a lot of beauty to it, but a challenge with that self-sufficiency sometimes is that we'll pray for 100 people before we're vulnerable with one person praying for us. And so I think being a church that's surrounded by prayer um, I would love for us to risk it and just be like, okay, you could post this on Facebook and totally stab me in the back, but here's where I'm at, and I would love to be surrounded in prayer. And we have time for that. Like, I want, Lord willing, we'll spend a lifetime walking in this. And so we have time for each other. We have time to pray for each other. And so would we be a people that's just, are you a person surrounded by prayer? And then the second question is are you in the middle of an alive church? Are you in the middle of an alive church? And so it doesn't have to be sacred mission. You could be like, yeah, thank you. This has become so crystal clear that I should go to Cornerstone Ames. Thank you. And I'd be like, yes. Like, if you were in the middle of a church that is alive, or it could be the Collins Christian Church, or wherever it may be, like, we are going to support that. But by God's grace, like, when this letter was written... He had in mind a group of people, all of the yous are plural in this letter. So he's speaking to the room and he's saying, this is true of you. This is true of you. This is true of you. And you might be like, uh, not for me, I'm on the sidelines. Not for me, I'm on the periphery. And man, what I would, for us each to push back the darkness as it comes, for each of us to really love each other well, um, man, I remember I had a friend that he's an uh, ATF federal agent um, in another state. And there was a day where he said, he said, I finally changed the way I think about church. And he said, for so long, I was just like, kind of come in late, leave early, kind of put my one hour in and um, didn't really care to get to know anybody. And I just kind of felt good when I left. And then he said, for, like God did a work in me where when I would walk in, what I was feeling was, put me in, coach. You know that feeling where you're like, I came to play. I came to be involved in this thing. I didn't come to be on the sidelines. Like I came to jump right in with everybody else, you know? And, um, and I think for the Thessalonian church, like the way Paul is speaking about them, like people are just in the middle of it. They're caught up in the middle of being part of an alive church. 
And if you find that you, you've been on the sidelines, or, or, uh, and I think you can be in the middle of an alive church by, by gathering online with us too. This doesn't mean you have to be in the room, but it, I think it means, though, that we have a, a posture of our heart that we are so open to say, like, Lord, I want to be in the middle of this thing, not because I'm worthy of it, not because I've got, like, these special skills, but because you're worthy of it, and I think you're calling me into it, and I want to be in the middle of an alive church. And so, so I think a, an amazing way that we get to be in the middle of an alive church is to commune with the alive Savior. And so that's what communion is. Um, through these two things, for are you a person surrounded by prayer? Are you in the middle of an alive church too? Um, man, we don't want to just talk about it and not like practice it. And so one of the things I'd love to invite us to do too is like you don't have to rush out of here if, um, if you need prayer or you want to pray. Like we can just kind of have people stand and be like, hey, these are people who just want to pray for people. Like please don't leave here carrying heavy things that you walked in with. Um, like we truly want to come around each other and surround each other in prayer. Um, and so if the Lord is like showing something to you about either of these two things, like playing church is coming, hearing things and leaving as if we didn't hear anything and doing it all over again the next week. And I think being a church is trying to pause when the Lord communicates things to us and give some space for that to get really planted in us to be the people that he wants us to be. Um, so as we come to the table together, this is his invitation of communing with him. He, he, he created this. Um, yes, these are cups with liquid in it. It's like a cup within a cup. We're trying to be conscious of just safety with this, and so we've been careful with how we fill these and everything. Uh, but it's just juice, then uh, some bread or cracker underneath, so you could just grab one. If, uh, if right now you are not a saved person, as we described it, if Jesus is not your Savior, don't come to the table. Come to Jesus. Give your life to him and then come to the table and commune with him in this way. But before, commune with him by just saying, Jesus, I'm yours. I give my life to you. Thank you for saving me. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's one of the only prayers guaranteed in Scripture that he will answer it, yes, immediately whenever someone prays it. Um, the warnings in Scripture is to not come to the table too quickly. Search us, O oh Lord. Um, if there's things we need to repent of, being sorry for something is kind of like, I'm sorry I'm caught. I'm sorry with how my sin is wrecking my life or something. That's being sorry. Repenting is, is feeling that conviction and then saying, Lord, I, I turn. Give me the power to turn. Um, so, so repenting of known sin that he reveals to us, uh, we can pray together if you'd like to do that before coming to the table. But let's together with an alive Savior um, commune together and commune with him by coming and taking the elements. So what we'll do is just come and uh, when, when you're ready, come and, and take. Uh, and then let's stay standing kind of where you're sitting. And then as family, we'll take it together. So let's come and let's respond.